This is the first of a two-part series of talks by Joel titled, Is There Help From Above? Recorded July 18, 1993 at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. O Tunkasila, help me in what I undertake. Be with me in my undertakings. Have pity on me. That's a prayer of the Kit Fox Society of the Oglala Sioux. And the object of the supplication is Inyan, which is considered in Oglala cosmology as the source, the primordial source of all things. And Inyan is referred to as Tunkasila, which means grandfather. If any of you speak Oglala, I'm probably butchering your language and I apologize. <laughs> But it's a very interesting prayer, because if we just change the name, it could be a prayer in any culture, in any tradition, in any time and place. It could be, uh, O Isis, help me in what I undertake, be with me in my undertakings, have pity on me. It could be Marduk, who was the god of Babylonia. It could be Athena. It could be Jesus. It could be Allah, it could be Mary, it could be Shiva, it could be Kali. It's a, almost a universal form here. And just a change of a name would tell you which culture it's from. That would really be the only difference. In point of fact, prayer has been a prominent feature of all spiritual traditions ever since shamanic times. And this raises uh, an interesting question. Does it work? We could put it this way. Is there any help from above? Is there some source of spiritual power or guidance which can be accessed through things like prayer or contemplation or whatever? Are there gods and goddesses and angels and demons and redeemers and disincarnate saints and gurus and whatnot? Scholars today have worked up one way, anyway, of classifying religions, and they generally apply to Eastern and Western religions, and that is religions of attainment and religions of redemption. Uh, religions of attainment would be Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism. Religions of redemption would be um, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam in general. And the idea is that attainment emphasizes human effort the Hindu yogi or the, uh, the Buddhist wayfarer. It's through their own efforts, through practices and so forth, that you attain uh, liberation, enlightenment, freedom. And the religions of redemption, according to these scholars, have a different point of view, and that is the emphasis is on divine grace. That it's God or some manifestation of God, like Jesus, that redeems you, that comes and does something to you. You might say the difference here is one of humanity reaching up to God in terms of attainment or God reaching down to humanity in terms of redemption. And many sophisticated spiritual seekers today tend to think that the idea of redemption is sort of a very exoteric idea, that really the esoteric way to go is through attainment. But... While it may be true that there's an emphasis 
in general in the Western religions on redemption and an emphasis on attainment in the Eastern religions, I'd like to read you some things, some quotes from various traditions, that will show you that it is not true that they are one way or another. For instance, Gershom Sholem, who's a great expert on Kabbalism, writes, It is by descending into the depths of his own self that man wanders through all the dimensions of the world. In his own self, he lifts the barriers which separate one sphere from the other. In his own self, finally, he transcends the limits of natural existence and discovers that God is all in all and there is nothing but him. This is from the Kabbalist tradition, which is, of course, of the mystics of Judaism. But this sounds very Eastern in that sense. It sounds very much like a method of attainment. That by going inwards, you discover the barriers and you lift the barriers between you and God and consciousness and the absolute. So it's your discovery, your effort. Meister Eckhart, who of course was a great Christian mystic, says, actually he's quoting Dionysius, who was a father of Christian mysticism, the race is nothing but a turning away from all created things and a uniting oneself with that which is uncreated. And as the soul attains this, it loses its name and draws God into itself, so that in itself it becomes nothing, as the sun draws up the red dawn into itself, so that it becomes nothing. He actually uses the word attainment here. That somehow the soul attains to this. And in this attainment, as he puts it, draws God into itself. That's quite the opposite of the idea of God reaching down and drawing you up. Sheikh Sharani, a Sufi mystic from the Islamic tradition, says, The way of the Sufis is the way of the exact gnosis of God and the knowledge of the diverse ways of self-training necessary for the gnosis of God. The emphasis here is on self-training, disciplines, practices, whatnot. So there is in the Western traditions, particularly among the mystics, very definitely the idea of attainment, of practices, of self-discipline, self-training, of something to be done. It's not just waiting around and praying for redemption. On the other hand, however, in the Eastern traditions, listen to the Buddhist Sutra of the Awakening of Faith. The thing called enlightenment is nothing that can be attained by practicing, nor can it be created by human hands. Wow, all this emphasis on Buddhism and practice and practice, but ultimately, it cannot be attained by practice, and it cannot be created by human hands, by human effort. The Bhagavad Gita, the great classic of uh, Hinduism, says, Directing your thoughts to me, by my grace you will overcome all obstacles. Anandamoyama, another Indian mystic, says, Everything comes by his grace alone. This, of course, is a fact. That's what she says. Everything comes by grace. She sounds like a Christian, doesn't she? The point is here, the distinction between redemption and attainment is not the same as the distinction between the exoteric and esoteric. They are actually complementary concepts, and both concepts are necessary, attainment and redemption.
And we can understand this perhaps by using an, a, a diagram. If we look at this chalkboard, which has nothing written on it, nothing drawn on it, and we imagine that this is going to represent consciousness itself. Brahman, the Tao, the Godhead, Allah, whatever name you want to use from whatever tradition. It's always described as without attributes. So there's nothing written on here, without distinctions. Infinite, of course, the chalkboard is finite, but we can imagine it being infinite, going off in all directions. Empty. Empty of any specific form. The Tao is empty of all forms. That's why the Tao can contain all forms. The Tao is an uncarved block. And so if we think of this blackboard as representing this consciousness, this divine consciousness, which really cannot be described with any human language or in any language whatsoever, human or divine. But to help us, the mystics have attributed some powers, if you like. Wisdom. Love. In Hinduism, sat-chit-ananda, consciousness being bliss. In Christianity, the Logos. You all know the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word. The Word is the translation of the Greek word Logos. Logos is a Greek philosophical term, but it means really the power to make distinctions, to create order and form. In the beginning, the Word was with God and was God. That Inherent in this God is this power of creating the world, manifesting the world. Intelligence. Bliss, love, play, the Leela of God, the, the whole purpose of this is just simply love, if we had to pick a word to try to describe a purpose. This is the nature of this blackboard, inherent in the blackboard itself. Nothing imposed on the blackboard. Now, if we take a chalk and we draw a circle here, to represent self. And of course, from a mystic's point of view, this is a distinction that is imaginary. The circle represents the boundaries that you experience in your life between self and world. I and other. I'm here and uh, this gong is over here. That's outside. My thoughts and stuff perhaps are inside me. There's some boundary here. Different people may draw differently and whatnot or experience differently, but this is a boundary we experience. Of course, from the mystic's point of view, it's not that there isn't the appearance of a boundary, but that the boundary isn't real. It's imaginary. Now, if we draw this boundary in consciousness, and we look inside, this represents, you can think of as each one of you, you can look inside, and you see... At least there's the potential for love and intelligence. Not all of us manifest it completely. But there is the potential for love and intelligence, for bliss, for logos, for wisdom in here. It's a potential that manifests through us. We experience that when we behave intelligently, wisely, when we behave lovingly. We also experience this in the encounter with other human beings or sentient beings. So I'll draw another couple circles around here, representing animals. 
and people, let's say. So we recognize something outside us that also manifests love and intelligence. If we look at a rock, well, let's look at a tree first. I'm not a very good artist here, but... We might say we recognize a manifestation of intelligence, if you like. We don't think of the tree as being intelligent, but if we observe trees closely, and if you know anything about trees, they're quite marvelous. The organization of a tree, the sap, the cells, the life cycle of a tree, uh, botanists and so forth get this experience of this, this tremendous order and beauty in the world of life. And maybe if we look at a rock, we don't really see much of anything in that. It looks pretty dead and whatnot. But again, a scientist might see a rock as extremely beautiful. The structure of atoms and molecules and whatnot. The point here is that all forms manifest love and intelligence. Our vision is somewhat limited by this opaque boundary around us. Every form has this innate potential capacity to manifest the nature of the, if you like, substance out of which it's made, the ultimate substance, that is consciousness itself. Our seeing this in a kind of a graded way, starting by recognizing that I'm loving and intelligent, of course, that some other people are loving and intelligent, uh, that some animals have less intelligence and perhaps less love all the way down through trees and plants and down to rocks and molecules and whatnot. And that gradation is a consequence of our own ignorance and blindness. Truly speaking, the same love and intelligence that's inside here is everywhere. This is why, for instance, the Upanishads say about Brahman, he is within all and is also outside. And Lady Tsoigal, a great Tibetan practitioner, wrote, If you recognize me, the Dakini queen of the lake of awareness, the principle of the whole of samsara and nirvana, you know that I live in the minds of all sentient beings, Though certainly we are ultimately inseparable, failing to recognize me, you objectify me as an external entity. Let's dwell on this one for a minute. She's saying that she, and now she's speaking of her true identity as consciousness itself, poetically put as the Dakini Queen of the Lake of Awareness. The Lake of Awareness is this chalkboard. The principle of the whole of samsara and nirvana, the whole of the deluded world and the real world. If you recognize this, you know that she lives in the minds of all sentient beings. And in fact, she lives in all samsara and nirvana. Though certainly we are ultimately inseparable, there's no difference between her and us, she's saying. This line is imaginary. Failing to recognize me, failing to recognize this ground of being, this chalkboard, you objectify me as an external entity. In other words, you look out there and you see other beings, gongs, trees, whatnot. This is a product of delusion, a projection of delusion, if you like. 
But ultimately, it's all a manifestation of the same underlying wisdom and love. Dionysius, who Meister Eckhart quoted earlier, writes, God is within our intellects, souls, and bodies, in heaven, on earth, and whilst remaining the same in itself, it is at once in, around, and above the world, super-celestial, super-essential, a sun, a star, fire, water, spirit, dew, cloud, stone, rock, all that is, yet it is nothing. Christian mystic, beautifully put. It is all that is, and yet in itself it is nothing. It is all the, the people and the trees and the dews and the rocks and the clouds and so forth. And yet in itself, the chalkboard is empty. It's nothing the way the Tao is nothing. And yet the Tao manifests the myriad creatures. Abin Arabi, a Sufi mystic, says essentially the same thing. Allah is essentially in all things great or small, ignorant of truth or aware. Thus does his mercy embrace all things. Mercy is an Islamic way of putting this inherent love of the divinity. So if this is true, if consciousness is no thing that is also all things, then all things are full of this love and wisdom. That means that all forms are potential windows for us to the divine. As Lady Soigel says, if we could but recognize it, if we could but see it. Every form is a potential window. The problem is, we fail to recognize it, just as Lady Soigel says, we fail to recognize this. But as we begin a spiritual path, as this native wisdom starts to awaken inside, we can start to recognize the divinity that is outside, inherent in these forms. This is why, if you are familiar at all with shamanic cultures, this division, this line between self and world is very transparent. Almost anything imaginable can and has been considered divine in shamanic cultures pools and streams and rocks and trees and sacred animals and buffalo and whatnot. Every sensual form has the potential for communicating the divine. You might say that uh, it's like a tent. And if you live in a tent, you don't see any light. As you awaken on a spiritual path, it's like starting to make little rents in this tent. And little bits of light come through. And just going about your daily business, if you are on a spiritual path, if this wisdom and love is being awakened in you, you'll start to see flashes of this, sometimes in very ordinary things. In fact, even if you are completely deluded and dense, most people don't escape at least a little beauty in their lives. A sunset, or walking in the forest, or spotting a, a deer at dawn or something. Oh, it's a, a little aha, like that. It stops, makes you catch your breath a little bit. 
You have to be awfully dense not to get a little glimpse of this. In our culture, which has lost all sense of the sacredness of the world, of course, people don't attribute that to anything sacred. It's just kind of beautiful. What, is, what does that mean? Sort of extraneous facet of life for a lot of people anyway. But as you more and more begin to see that things have this potential and that this potential shines through, the reaction, the sign of the recognition of this is what we might call awe. It's the same awe of a sunset, but it grows more powerful and, and it grows stronger. And it also can be manifest in two uh, different uh, poles, we might say. They're not different ways, they're poles of the same experience. It can be manifest as extreme breathtaking beauty, heart-stopping beauty tear-welling beauty. The other end of the pole can be manifest as fear, as often in traditions uh, described as the fear of God, the fear of Allah. This isn't the fear of a big judge in the sky. This is the fear of the awesomeness of the power that is everywhere and permeates everything. Beauty usually comes when we recognize the logos part, the order and the intelligence, the structure. Fear comes when we recognize the impermanence, the constant changing of all this, the breakdown of it, the chaos. There's a wonderful description of this in the Bhagavad Gita, when Krishna appears to Arjuna. And uh, Krishna's teaching him in the form of a charioteer. And then Arjuna keeps saying, well, let me see your, your divine forms. And Krishna finally says, okay. And he manifests as this battle that Krishna's about to fight. And Arjuna's descriptions are horrendous. Krishna gobbles up these armies and gnashes them in his teeth. And, and Krishna's going, oh, oh my God, oh my God. And finally he begs, I mean, Arjuna is, and finally he begs Krishna, he says, I see, it's wonderful, it's awesome, but please come back to your form as a charioteer. Enough already, at least for a while. It's not just in the Christian and, and Jewish traditions that there's this idea of the fear of God. We've been reading in our Wednesday group about Buddhism, this book by Ayakema, and she talks about fears and obstacles. That when you really encounter impermanence and experience the impermanence of the world, it, it can create this. Awe is a, is a good English word that sums this up. Awe has that sense of both fear and beauty at the same time. Art. There's another way this can manifest to us. Sacred artists, holy artists, consciously know that they are recreating forms that have this quality or have had this quality for them. It might be something as simple as a shaman's drum, the paintings on the shaman's drum. And then, of course, it can be uh, the art of architecture, great temples, cathedrals. All attempts to use the sensual realm, the materials, they're just ordinary stuff, and shape forms that will have this transparency, that will be windows. This is the purpose and meaning of sacred art as opposed to secular art, which is decorative, or which you collect because you think it's going to go up in value. You know, there are a lot of people who collect art as a hedge against inflation and so forth. 
But sacred art is art that is designed to mediate the divine to us. What it does, when you find a form, a sensual form, that has this quality to you, and it will be different for different people, it's designed to draw your attention, to direct your attention to it. All of which can be summed up under the word worship. The meaning of the word worship is to be orientated to what is most worthy. So if you go into a cathedral to worship, the whole design of the cathedral is to direct your attention to what is most worthy. Through a form, to the ground of it all. When we talk about art, and sacred art gives us a bridge to talk about a, another sort of manifestation of sacred forms that aren't sensual forms, gross forms. In spiritual traditions, there's a distinction between the gross and subtle. And Jennifer reminded me the first time she heard it, she said, she, I thought you were using it in the sort of idiomatic way it's used days. You know, it's gross. Gross simply means sensual, you know. It doesn't carry any necessarily negative connotation. Gross and subtle. Subtle are forms that appear in the mind. They don't appear to the five senses. Subtle forms come by way of dreams or visions. They tend to be more powerful because they are archetypal. More powerful than sensual forms. Archetypal, what does archetypal mean? Archetypal are higher order forms. And to do full justice to the subject, we'd have to go into a long discussion of archetypes. But just to briefly give some background on this, in all traditions, the manifest cosmos is a structured cosmos. It's not just random. The first forms we might think about that are produced by the divinity, not necessarily first in time, give birth to other forms and other forms and other forms, and there's a gradation, again from our point of view, from higher to lower. The archetypal forms are higher forms in a certain sense control the lower forms. I'll give you one example of this, again from the Aglala. This is a quote of Black Elk, and it's about Crazy Horse, who's a famous Oglala warrior, whose whole life was controlled by a vision, as was Black Elk's, by the way. And Black Elk's writing about Crazy Horse, and he says, Crazy Horse dreamed and went into the world where there is nothing but the spirits of all things. That is the real world beyond this one, and everything we see here is something like a shadow from that world. That's a very succinct description of this idea of a hierarchy of forms. Another world standing behind this world, another world of form standing behind this world, of which this world is just a shadow. If you've ever read Plato or are familiar with the Plato's uh, image or metaphor of the cave, that we live in a world of shadows, we think they're very substantial. We're chained and we, we're looking at a wall and we can only look at this wall because of our bondage, and we see these shadows, and we don't realize they're being created by forms behind us, and this is all being created by light that's streaming in the cave. 
So the archetypal forms are behind us. Uh, we're not directly aware of them. And we see projections of those in, in the sensual, the gross realm. The forms that appear in visions and dreams are archetypal forms. They have less material substance in that sense, and so they are more transparent to the divine. We can, in a certain sense, say they're closer. They are part of this hierarchical structure, and hierarchy, by the way, means simply coming from a sacred origin. Arche is Greek for origin, and hiere, I'm not quite pronouncing that right, is sacred. So it means sacred origin. Everything comes from a sacred origin. Uh, we can represent this by way of a pyramid. It can be represented in many ways. By the way, we could flip this around and talk about the ground of being. It's arbitrary to say up and down. But all the way back to shamanic traditions, there's the talk of the spiritual path as an ascension. In Siberian shamanic traditions, it's very often represented as ascension uh, on a tree up to heaven, for instance. And there'd be seven or nine or different uh, realms that you pass through. The whole idea of the Indian rope trick initially came from the idea of climbing up this sacred vine that is connecting heaven and earth. The, uh, the tree of life is, again, the tree that connects these realms. One way of talking about this is the Buddhist distinction of the three kayas the three bodies of the Buddha, not the historical Buddha, but the Buddha nature, which is the chalkboard. The top layer then of this pyramid would be the Dharmakaya. That is the transcendent mind of the Buddha. The middle layer here is the Sambhogakaya. That is the subtle realm, archetypal manifestations. If the Buddha appears to you in a dream, the Buddha is appearing to you in the Buddha's Samboga Kaya. Kaya, by the way, means vehicle or body. And then the bottom realm is the Nirmanakaya. The Nirmanakaya is the sensory realm. So Sakyamuni Buddha, the historical Buddha, appeared in the Nirmanakaya. Interesting this because this is uh, very similar to the Christian idea of uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, isn't it? The, this Trinity. You'll find these uh, forms are repeated in tradition after tradition. They'll be expressed very differently and symbolized very differently in different cosmologies. But they're repeated because they are archetypal. So you have this hierarchy. This is what it is. If the Buddha appears to you, or if an angel, or uh, a, a guru, or somebody appears to you in a dream or a vision, they're appearing to you in this archetypal form. Just like sensual forms, they are potential windows to the divine. They manifest love and intelligence. So you can get guidance. You can get uh, help through this. We might look at it from our point of view, a slightly different diagram, from the point of view of an individual human being, as a kind of an hourglass. So an hourglass without a top and a bottom. This is who we think we are, right? Where the two, uh, where the two sides come together, in this narrow little neck, limited. 
check on your own experience. We look out, let's call this the, the bottom half of the hourglass, the sensual realm. We look out, and this is what we see. And it expands infinitely. And if we look inward, however, we'll find the same thing. If we look through, what do we see? Our first encounter, usually with subtle forms, are just thoughts, common thoughts. They don't appear to our senses. You can't put your hand on a thought. But there are levels and depths of thought, symbolic thought. Dreams. We may experience very sensual things in dreams, but they are not the sensual things of this realm. Visions. All these appear to the mind. And just as you can't imagine an end looking out, there isn't an end to space. There's no end to looking in either. <coughs> we spend most of our lives, our attention is directed out here in a very narrow <coughs> band of experience in the upper realm. We're aware of our thoughts and dreams a little bit and so forth. But we don't think this is real. We dismiss all this as imaginary. So most of our attention, particularly in our culture, is directed towards the central realm. A lot of a spiritual path is getting us to turn around and direct attention inward, inward, over and over again on a spiritual path. The direction is go inside. The kingdom of God is within you. The Buddha nature is your own nature. Look within that's where the archetypes are discovered. Yourself is the greatest window that there is to the divine. Most spiritual seekers, somewhere along the line, have visions, dreams, a sense of being guided, a sense of uh, something breaking through. Some it's much stronger than others. Some it's a major part of the path, others it's more of an auxiliary part of the path. For others it's more of an intellectual journey, but it's still an archetypal journey because thoughts uh, have this quality, have this potential. Let me read you what Teresa Avila says about this difference between, we might say, archetypal forms and archetypal thoughts. When the soul is in this state of suspension, this is an ecstatic visionary state, when the soul is in this state of suspension and the Lord sees fit to reveal to it certain mysteries, such as heavenly things and imaginary visions, it is able subsequently to describe these. But when they are intellectual visions, they cannot be so described, for at these times come visions of so sublime a kind that it is not fitting for those who live on earth to understand them in such a way that they can be described. Many, many mystics, particularly of the more Janana uh, path, will describe thought in this way. This is not our ordinary thought about balancing your checkbook at the end of the month. This comes from contemplation, perhaps of a teaching. It reveals thought that itself cannot be put into form, which, by the way, is reflected in science. Einstein said the <clears throat> true creative thought for scientists comes first, and then the struggle is to find some way to put it into form to express it. This is the archetype. 
they're saturated with meaning. You might say the meaning outshines the form, and they try to get it into form. Some of you perhaps write poetry or write as a, a creative sense. Sometimes you know that. You know what you're trying to say, but you can't express it. You can't find the words. Note, though, a very interesting thing, that archetypal forms, when they appear to us, have this quality of objectivity. The difference of a daydream that you invent, which is still a subtle realm, but it's not the true appearance of an archetype. You can sit around and, and daydream about, you know, what it would be like to be in Hawaii on a beach today and so forth, and you can create a kind of world in your mind. But you recognize this is subjectively created. This is why St. Teresa says that in her terms, in her cosmology, the Lord grants you this grace. The worship, the turning toward a sacred form is matched by a response on the other side, if you like. <clears throat> At least it appears this way. As long as we have the sense that we are living in a world where these boundaries are real, there's a subject and an object, then God, Brahman, the Tao, whatever, appears to us as an objective response. Moses and Yahweh. Moses goes up to the mountain. That's the attainment part. That's the reaching up, and then God comes down to the mountain, and they meet halfway. That's the grace part. Muhammad in the cave. Muhammad went to this cave for months to meditate. And one day, Gabriel, this angel, appears to him and starts dictating the Quran. And Mohammed thought he was going nuts. And Gabriel had to come and say, no, you are not nuts. You better listen. There are famous examples. Tsongkhapa was a great Tibetan teacher, the founder of a whole Tibetan school. His teacher was Manjushri. Manjushri is the Buddha's Sambhogakaya. In other words, he got all his teachings and visions. Some of these visions have changed the whole course of history. That's how important they are. We would not be sitting here today in this culture if Jesus had not appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. That one event was more important than the Battle of Waterloo. It had more effect than history. Do you see what I mean? Quite amazing, isn't it? Abina Rabi says... Divinity presents a level of reality that causes the worshiper to imagine that it is the object of his worship. In reality, this level is the self-manifestation of God to the consciousness of the worshiper of the object in this particular mode of manifestation. He's talking about this appearance of a form. In order to reach us, consciousness, the divinity appears in a particular form. It's natural then for people to say, oh, this is God, as though that was the whole ball of wax. But it's only because this is the form you can understand that consciousness appears in that form. In Christianity, a very common manifestation is Jesus. Jesus does not normally appear to Hindus. Krishna appears to Hindus. I don't know one incident on record where Krishna just up and appeared to a Christian. 
You can read all through the mystics of the Middle Ages. It's not one that I know of where Krishna appeared. And archetypal Buddhists to Buddhists and so forth. However, and this is what Jung began to discover, there are structural, functional parallels between these archetypes. For instance, there is a redeemer type of which Jesus and Krishna and the Buddha are clear manifestations. And there are other kinds of archetypes that appear. Mary, for instance, or the saints that appear to people in Christianity, that appear in relation to some specific obstacle that the practitioner is experiencing. One of the major tasks of a new worldview will be to map this out. I don't have a map for you. It's several generations of work to do. I'll give you one example of this, a fairly clear-cut and well-worked-out one, though, from the Tibetan tradition. In the Tibetan tradition, there are many Dakinis and Devas and whatnot, but there are basically five Sambhogakaya archetypes of the Buddha. And each one has a function. Each one transforms a different obstacle. So one transforms anger. One transforms jealousy. One transforms ignorance. One transforms lust. One transforms pride. And in that tradition, rather than just wait for some vision to happen, there are methods and techniques of working with the archetype. So if your problem is anger, you go contemplate and work with the archetype that transforms anger. Very sophisticated. Again, though, it requires directing attention through prayer or contemplation to the archetype. So this relationship between grace and attainment is a two-way street. It's not unlike human relations. There's only so much I can do to reach out to you. If we're going to have a relationship, you have to reach out to me. There's only so far I can go in controlling a relationship much as I might like to control the whole relationship. The joy of the relationship is that I, ego, can't control it all. I used to ride horses a lot. And one of the difference between riding a horse and riding on a motorcycle, for instance, and there are a lot of physical similarities, or you don't have a windshield, and there's the wind blowing your hair and all that, but there's one big, big difference. That horse has a mind of its own. You have to work with a living being here. It's a huge difference. So the answer to the question is, yes, there is help from above. There is something that responds from the other side of self, if you like. There is a not only a reaching up, there's not only your own effort, your own discipline, but there is also a response that can come in many, many forms. It's not just a naive, exoteric corruption of the teachings to think that way about prayer, for instance. However, there is a difference between an exoteric approach to archetypal phenomena and an esoteric approach. And it's important to understand that because otherwise they can be badly abused. The two main things to guard against is, first of all, reification. 
I mentioned reification before as taking something imaginary to be real. In this case, it's thinking that these forms had this power in their own right. Well, the most common example of this is idolatry, is to carve a statue of Athena and set it up and think that the power is in the wood itself, not to recognize that the form is the window. And this is a great danger and happens often in traditions because somebody does have an experience of Athena. And if they're an artist, they carve a statue because they want you to look and see that window. But other people come along and they don't see that as a window. They just see a statue. But they think then there's something magical about the statue. This is why in Islam and Judaism, there was a great uh, suspicion of idols to the point where they're forbidden. It's so easy to fall into that. It's so easy to mistake the wood or the stone for the divinity not to use it as a medium for this communication, this experience. So the, the great danger here is that you fall into this magical view of the world, so to speak. Also, the same thing is true if you approach this from a selfish point of view. If the ego looks at an idol and decides, ooh, I can use that power for myself, I can manipulate the world through some power that's here. This is even worse abuse. The other abuse just blinds you. If you're worshiping idols, it's very hard to see divinity. This is actually a negative abuse in the sense that this is damaging. If you treat a manifestation of an archetype, a manifestation of the divine in whatever form, be it a sensual form or a vision and whatnot, if you treat that with pride... Ooh, how great I am, and what power can I have? And you start trying to attain, not self-surrender to divinity, but using the divine power for self, you are in deep trouble. You have to be careful and respect this. If you are graced with grace in this form, Treat it with humility and gratitude. And be willing to be led and don't try to lead God, if you like. But approach correctly any form that speaks to you. Whether, again, it's a sunset or whether it's a vision of uh, the Virgin Mary can be a great benefit, a great help on a spiritual path. So, how can this help be solicited? How can we at least invoke this grace somehow? And there are actually several ways, and I was going to try and cover them all, but I started on um, prayer, which is by far and away the most universal and the most ancient method of reaching up, reaching beyond self. And... It's such a vast subject, I don't just stick with prayer. But there are other sorts of contemplative disciplines that will do this as well. But as I said, prayer is the most ancient and universal form. And it's also, in a certain sense, the easiest to get into, as we'll see. But what exactly is prayer? 
Let's see what seekers in the past have had to say about prayer. Let's start way back, at least as far as we can reach back into history, and that's through contemporary shamanic cultures. And this was from a Pawnee chief, Pawnee Native American, and he's describing what happened in Pawnee religion in the old days. When a man sought to know how he should live, he went into solitude and cried until some animal brought wisdom to him. George Sword, who was a Lakota uh, elder that was interviewed around the turn of the century, had been alive when the Lakotas were still free. If a boy or a young man wishes to know what he should do all his life, he should seek a vision. The usual way to seek a vision is to purify the body in an initi, which is a sweat lodge, by pouring water on hot stones, and then go naked, wrapped only in a robe, to the top of a hill, and stay there without speaking to anyone of mankind, or eating, or drinking, and thinking continually about the vision he wishes. If one goes to a hill in this manner, he should remain there until he receives a vision, or until he has nearly perished. And then here's a description quite classic from Igjugarjuk, who is a caribou Eskimo. And he tells about a vision quest that he undertook, seeking a vision from a female deity named Pinga. And his instructor was a shaman named Perkanak, I guess it's pronounced. And there was a long uh, preparatory process here. He first fasted off and on for, for extended periods of time, actually, and went through all these things for about a year. And finally, his uh, shaman, his instructor, took him out to an isolated spot and built him a little snow hut. This is up in the Arctic. And all he had was a skin to sit on. He had to sit in his snow hut. And he had to sit here for 30 days, fasting and being completely isolated. And then here's the instructions that Perkana gave him. As soon as I had become alone, Perkana enjoined me to think of one single thing all the time I was to be there. To want only one thing. And that was to draw Pinga's attention to the fact that there I sat and wished to be a shaman. And then he describes what happens. Towards the end of the 30 days, a helping spirit came to me. She came to me whilst I had collapsed, exhausted, and was sleeping. But I still saw her, lifelike, hovering over me. And from that day, I could not close my eyes or dream without seeing her. It was a sign that Pinga had now noticed me and would give me powers that would make me a shaman. So these are three different descriptions from shamanic cultures about seeking help from above, how to go about it. You notice this way back in the, the dawn of human history, the earliest form of religion, you might say. There are four points about this, about these descriptions that we should notice. One is the necessity for solitude. In all shamanic descriptions that you read, you'll find the first thing is solitude. You go someplace, you go to a, a hill, you go off to the wilderness, you go into a, an isolated spot, into a snow hut, someplace to be alone. And then the next thing is this business of crying for a vision. The Lakotas go out to cry for a vision. And then... 
Third, there's this business of focusing attention, concentrating on this one thing. Think only of this vision. Think only of this help that you want. Don't let your attention wander to other things. And finally, the nature of the guidance that appears is always in this form that is experienced as being objective to the self. In other words, it's not a thought that the vision quester has. Say, oh, I had this thought. Somebody or a being or an animal or something appears in a vision or a dream. It may even be in gross form, as I said earlier. You may see uh, a white buffalo pass you while you're sitting on your spot, and that might be the communication. Oftentimes, in the reports we get from shamans, it's not mentioned whether this was a dream or a vision or an actual white buffalo that passed, because that was irrelevant. It was the understanding that a communication had been received. So it always has this quality of something happening objectively, this grace from the outside, an answer coming to this cry. So let's take these points one at a time. Solitude. Listen to what the Upanishads say. Find a quiet retreat for the practice of yoga, sheltered from the wind, level and clean, free from rubbish, smoldering fires, and ugliness, where the sound of waters and the beauty of the place help thought and contemplation. We tend to think of this vision quest as being specific to shamanic cultures, but if you think about it, what did Moses do? Went to the mountaintop to meet God, didn't he? It's nothing but a vision quest. What about uh, Buddha? He went to a spot, sat on it, and determined to sit there until he was enlightened or perished. Didn't have any communication with mankind, fasted, didn't eat, didn't drink. It's nothing but a vision quest the Buddha undertook. Muhammad in his cave, he went to this cave, he kept going back for months and months in solitude. Jesus going into the desert for 40 days and fasting is a vision quest. There's this thread that runs through all these traditions, goes right back to the very first ones. Right back to the shamanic practices. Now, not all of us can go off to the mountains or the desert or the wilderness. Actually, we're pretty lucky here in Eugene. You can go off to the wilderness pretty easily. Although, in the summertime, if you go off to the wilderness, you won't probably find solitude. <laughs> you have to really hike into the bad country to find solitude. Um, so, what can you do if you can't go to the wilderness? If you live in New York City, for instance. Okay, you don't have to go to the wilderness. Listen to what Jesus said. When you pray, go into your inner room and close the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is in secret will reward you. He's talking here about, he's contrasting this practice to the practice of the Pharisees of the time, 
who would go to the temple and pray publicly and loudly and let everybody know that they were praying. And, and in all traditions, this develops. And there's nothing wrong with communal prayer. But if you really want to find this help from above, go inward. Find a place of solitude, your room. Any place will do. It doesn't have to be in the wilderness. It's great if you can go. Why solitude? Well, one of the most obvious reasons, and most of you who've done some meditation know that one of the biggest problems of trying to focus attention, concentrate, is you have distractions. The telephone rings and the da-da-da and people come to visit and, and whatnot. And just even in being in a familiar uh, surroundings, there are things that remind you of things you have to do tomorrow or tonight or shopping or you didn't pay the rent or whatever. If you can get off in the wilderness, mountains and whatnot, one of the great things about that is all those little reminders in the environment are removed. If you can afford it, it's a great idea to have one room in your house set aside just for meditation that has nothing else in it. You know, no calendars or whatever. And maybe you want to have things in that room, uh, spiritual symbols, so that the reminders that come in from your environment are reminders that help you focus rather than reminders of things that distract you. And what is the great obstacle here? Why don't we do it? It's so simple. Is basically because we're lazy. We're lazy in a funny way. We're lazy about taking control of our own lives. Our lives are constant responses to these gross realm distractions, worldly distractions. It's amazing how little we control our lives.